Greetings everyone, happy holidays, and welcome to the fourth episode of Double Slit. Uh, today I think either your mind will be blown by the material, or you will never listen to me again. Or both, maybe, but probably not neither of those two. For reference, I'm listening to 28 Ghosts 4. You know, uh, let me loosen up again. That felt right before. Let me do it again. Uh, the quick brown fox jumped over the log. You know, I, I got a question about this one. Why is it a brown fox? Like, why isn't the, the, the thing... Uh, how about the quick fox jumped over the brown log? I, I ask that because... I tend to think of foxes as red or maybe orange, but not really brown. But logs are, are definitely brown in my imagination. Uh, I, I know there are foxes of different colors, but most of the foxes that I've actually seen with my own eyes, like in person or on television, uh, most of them are like red, red-orange. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that should be the teaser for the next one. Why is it a brown fox instead of a brown log? Hello out there to all of you in the ether. Uh, you know, I give up making promises. I mean, if anyone wants to hold me to my prior promises, let me know. I'll try to make good. But from here on, I know better. And any promises I make will be completely pantheistic, like not actual promises. I don't know if that's a usable form of the word pantheist, like in the the way Einstein was pantheist. I, I don't know. Anyway, you know, I had promised a follow-up a while back, and I had recorded it, but it was really too boring to subject anyone to. I um, had trouble listening to it myself. Um, and then there was another episode that I recorded with my co-ghost, Monty, that... The technical issues we were having were a lot more extensive than I thought, and uh, I got into editing it, you know, to my not-quite-industry-standard, um, but it still was taking a lot of time and effort, and I just don't think it was worth it, so I let it go. Uh, hopefully, all of you can, too. I'm trying to move on and forget about it. So, uh, speaking of moving on... Uh, it's taken me too long to get the baseline down that I wanted. I, I, I started this and I had this plan to lure in a few listeners, introduce or review, uh, what have you, the double slit experiment, and then move on to show how I use that experiment as an analogy um, when I analyze other things, namely uh, philosophical issues. Um, and here we are, this is the fourth episode, and I'm not even very well started on the foundation at all, so I'm going to just pretend most of that groundwork is laid, and I'm going to start applying my own method of analysis on things. Uh, now, not to worry, I am laying out uh, my methodology 
a, a very complete description of that methodology and I will probably publish that as my next book um, so if you feel lost in the stuff I'm talking about by all means check it out it'll be free on there until I, I actually move into publication then I'll probably take it down but I don't think you're really gonna need it I think this is gonna work without too much more uh, background info the one serious piece of information missing still of course is the double slit experiment itself uh, I don't think that's too much of a problem if you feel too lost about that there are many YouTube videos which do a much better job explaining it than I can and and then what you need to know in reference to how I'll be using it really depends on your worldview so when I was gonna lay all that groundwork uh, basically my goal was to take whatever wherever you landed in the spectrum of worldviews uh, and just kind of merge it all um, into one at, at least get, get us all on the same page and move forward um, but it was taking much longer than I thought it would have um, so whether you're coming from a, a personal background with little to no education in philosophy or, uh, or if you are somebody who's vastly more formally educated in philosophy than I am I, I think I can sum this up quickly as I see it anyway, the, the answer to any mystery is always in plain sight. Seek and ye shall find, to quote another great philosopher. Now keep in mind that I am committed to a personal policy of non-indoctrination and I, I can't always say what form that will take. Um, it, it changes, I'm not entirely used to what it always looks like or what it's always gonna look like so you know for example I can already tell that I'm being very long-winded in the the book there uh, enter the flux and I can be long-winded on here I just I want you to realize that it comes from uh, my trying to adhere to that personal policy and less from like enjoying hearing myself talk I, you know, I still want to do my own idea justice or, you know, what I feel would, would be to do it justice, but I am in a hurry. Uh, all right, so let's go. What's my rush, right? Well, I like, there, there used to be this old uh, catchphrase on like uh, Prego commercials. It's in there. I, I really can't get into why I feel so rushed right now I, I definitely have my, my reasons but um, let me give a super brief overly simplified discourse on my method and then I'm gonna apply it to the original teaser about the possibility of our living in a simulation so I, I will actually get at my answers today as I mentioned in a previous episode, the amount of effort one is willing to expend to find an answer to one's question is related to one's estimate of being able to find an answer. If that was a little cloudy, let me say, you know, if, if you know you have a chance of winning, you try a little harder. If you, if you think the game's already lost, you know, a lot of times 
you know, you might play, but you don't, you don't always, you know, some of us do, <laughs> some of us don't, but you don't always put in, you know, that extra effort. Now, I didn't have that in my mind 20 years ago, you know, but nowadays, you know, I would extrapolate that, that way of looking at it um, and say that, you know, when a question seems impossible to answer, you know, I do have an approach to answer it. Uh, the, the way I can assure that I'll put in enough effort to run it to ground, you know, if it's a very tough question, it's, it starts with making the assumption that I can definitely find the answer. There's always an answer. Uh, you, you just, <laughs> you gotta look. So... You know, 20 years ago when I started this, you know, I asked myself how I can know for sure that reality is real. Um, I didn't really realize the amount of effort I was going to end up putting into it, but I did refuse to accept the lack of an answer I was getting or or at least of a satisfactory answer. Uh, Everywhere I turned, um, you know, no one had a good answer for me. Some people were honest and and said they didn't have a good answer to that. And some people, you know, tried to BS their way through it. Uh, Some people had answers that were satisfactory for them, uh, but nothing sat well enough for me. Uh, So I never gave up. But, you know, when I got married, it did go on the back burner. Never slipped my mind, you know, because I I got stuck in what I would later find out would be called a cycle of doubt. So being stuck there, it it was always on my mind, but my priority was to take care of my family. When I started getting uh, formal education in philosophy, it it just resurfaced and it, it came back into focus for me. You know, in my early 20s, I had proven to myself that I exist, uh, but I had yet to prove that anyone else existed. Um, It was a tough place to be. Now, when the dilemma returned to my attention, uh, you know, my my subconscious had kind of already worked out most of it. And I just ne- I, I just needed to let it flow out. I did a lot of uh, how you say like um, mind bending like acrobatics to think the thoughts that my subconscious had come up with. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think humans have concepts for a lot of things because I don't have words for them. I I highly doubt that any of us have the monopoly on this thing it's a it's a bit of a mess so i had to develop a few analytical tactics the one that i find most applicable to the simulation dilemma is something i refer to as the infinite digression uh, which you know i'm not married to the term but the method itself has proven itself very useful uh, on many occasions of course, it's a playoff of the notion of infinite regression, which I encountered uh, in studying St. Thomas Aquinas. 
And uh, by the way, I I uh, came up with that name by trying to think of things the other way, which I ended up calling the infinite procession. Also, uh, a useful uh, a useful analytical tool. So essentially, in infinite digression, I match or assign one or more analogies to the problem. Uh, excuse me, analogs. Uh, basically, by matching up as much data between the two sets as possible, I create a fractal, if you will. And, and then I can zoom in or out from the position of, the, of where the gap is to find out at least what the missing information should look like. But I gotta admit, my education in mathematics is not very high. You know, I'm okay, but I don't personally have the ability to crunch the numbers I need to crunch to get extremely precise results. So I just kind of eyeball this stuff, and then I use a little elbow grease and the old trial and error method until I've reached, you know, the level of, preci of precision that I find appropriate. Of course, as you can imagine, my answers are not always right or true, uh, but I do always arrive to a value using this method, and then I, you know, I check the value for validity. So, applying this to the original teaser, if I question that I live in a simulation, what can I do to prove or disprove that possibility? Uh, you know, in my case, I'm not wealthy. I don't have a super collider at my disposal or a gravity wave detector, so on and so forth. And even if I did have the wealth to procure those items, I would still be at the mercy of that technology and its sources, which could easily be manipulated by the evil genius who put me in the simulation. Uh, so I would never really know that, and that would never do anyway. Everything still requires proving that science is valid. And, and I mean, like, that science is valid in evaluating objective reality. Uh, to my knowledge, that still hasn't been done. Maybe we can get at that today. So, if we were in a simulation, there would be some sort of evidence, right? Okay, so let me assume that we are and look for that evidence. Uh, of course you can find evidence. Uh, any psychologist or sociologist will tell you that you can always find evidence to prove your assumption. It's called confirmation bias. Well, so you take that evidence that you gather, you know, I, I take it and I, I'm asking myself, well, is this evidence valid? Uh, which is, of course, where it can get tricky. Now, what I find with the evidence of living in a simulation is that it's about as valid as the evidence for God. In fact, I find most of it to be the same evidence. And I, to me, you know, that makes a certain kind of sense. Um, I don't believe in a God. Uh, I'm not inclined to believe in a simulation architect or designer. Now, of course, that statement that I just made kind of throws my objectivity into question. So let me kind of restate it. In my opinion, from my perspective, 
The evidence suggesting we live in a simulation is no more valid than those things that theists and deists use to prove God. Um, it's, it's just not substantial enough for me. Now, my opinion and my perspective is no more valid is no more valid than anyone else's. So I can use that to kind of push my thoughts a little further. Let me go back to the original teaser question. And you can think of this either way you want to. If a technologically advanced, intelligent, sentient being had us living our lives in a simulation, how moral was it to allow us to experience such things as the Holocaust and rape and, and atrocities of that nature? Like I said, you can, you can think of that either way you want to. Because the other way I would say you can think of it is, why does God let bad things happen? I look at those two questions as one and the same, but maybe you don't. I don't know. Pick the, pick the one that works for you. Uh, now I, I did find an answer. Like I said, uh, kind of an answer and a half. Uh, but understand that I find it morally reprehensible either way you frame the question. A sentient being would either have ensured that no suffering would come to the inhabitants of the creation or a simulation, or it would pull the plug before the sentient beings evolved. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard some people say that we just can't understand the way God works. Um, you know, I'm sorry, but that just isn't good enough for me. Uh, ethics and morals, I, I, they are universal, and if God would be bound to them as well. A perfect God would actually be bound by much stricter morals, by my calculations. Um, that is, like, as we advance, uh, we clean our morals up. We learn that this thing that no one would have thought of as wrong a hundred years ago Oh, we were all wrong. That's that's what happens throughout the course of history, uh, human history. So it stands to reason to me that, you know, thousands of years from now, they would be looking at us like we were the, uh, <laughs> we're like we're savages. And I think that that is, uh, that's probably, uh, that's probably right. So considering that, Considering that an ethical being wouldn't be able to just let us suffer, like, for, for no reason other than that we exist in that simulation or in that creation. So, my, you know, my answer is that it would have to be by accident. It would have to be some sort of mistake, uh, you know maybe precipitated by a momentary lapse in judgment, uh, you know, like possibly due to something like crippling loneliness, for example. Uh, but that would, that's like my main answer. Well, that, that could happen. That, that is possible. Uh, well, what if it wasn't some advanced species? What if it was a species like ourselves? What if, uh, what if we did it? What if humans fired up a simulation that led to the evolution and then the suffering of sentient beings, uh, you know, as an unintended consequence? 
you know, I, I think we'd still be morally responsible for the suffering that we had caused or allowed or however you want to think of that. But I don't know. I'm not sure what that's worth to anyone, whether, you know, you're talking about the creations or ourselves. We would still be morally responsible for the suffering. I, I think utilitarian calculus might say that it was still morally permissible to to make the creation as long as the amount of happiness experienced outweighed the suffering i don't even want to get into that right now um but i did want to put that out there just to <laughs> for posterity's sake okay uh, i'm gonna kind of work with another hypothesis to get at this uh if, if some advanced species survived to the end of the universe you know for the purposes of this scenario that means that like entropy was at a maximum there was no more gibbs free energy we as in all inhabitants of the universe left we were on our final reserves no replenishment to be expected then it would make sense to use whatever we had left to spark a new universe even if we were not able to create a universe that would be free of suffering. That's the half answer that I mentioned because I don't know, there's something wrong with it. You know, besides the assumption that this universe is going to come to an end, there, there's something wrong with it. I haven't um, put my finger on it yet. I do have one more answer and yeah, that's a bit of the old bait and switch again, I guess, but I would call it the null solution or the zero solution. Uh, and you might want to stretch your mind out a little bit more if you want to hear this. I had come to this answer by throwing basically every analytical tool I have at the problem. Infinite regression, infinite digression, infinite procession, and, and a host of other things that I have in my, my toolbox. Um, the the null answer, the zero answer, I think is best explained by asking other questions, of course. You know, I think uh, Socrates would have it no other way, and who am I to change uh, that thousands of years of tradition? So, who decided that human sentience was the pinnacle? Who decided that trees don't have sentience or atoms or subatomic particles? Who decided these things? We did, of course, we did. But do you not suppose there's any chance that we made an error in assuming those things? This is the kind of question that left me, you know, lonely inside my shell for 20 years. Uh, but don't worry, if you get lost, I think I found the way out, but let's leave it at that for today, and uh, if you join me next time, I don't know, we'll see uh, what the ether throws at us, and hopefully have a good time with it. Ciao.